Hello, Angelique Carson here, your trusty host. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're having a great week. It's chilly here in DC and I couldn't be more thrilled. Uh, if you're a longtime listener of the show, you know that uh, I'm very temperature sensitive and I complain about it being hot and sweaty in DC for about 75% of the year. Um, but I'm really happy right now. It's January, it's gray, it's cold. Everyone's probably miserable and I think it's wonderful. I strap my vest on, throw my hat on. Oh, it's so nice to be dry, you know? My current struggle in life is transitioning my plants to winter. They won't tell me what they need. And it's only when they start coughing or slouch over like drunks that I realize there's a problem. If you're ever leaving town, don't ask me to watch your plants. Not because I don't want to, but because there's a strong possibility that when you return, their posture is more like a soccer team that just lost a match than the proud soldiers they were when you left. I'll try my best, though. Anyhow, I've got a great episode for you today with a dear friend. But before we get to that, some news. Chris, trusty sound engineer and fellow Mainer, can you toss me some 60 Minutes vibes? Yeah. All right, first up, New Jersey has joined the party, friends. Becoming the 13th U.S. state to do so, New Jersey passed its comprehensive privacy bill, Senate Bill 332, on the final day of the state's legislative session, January 8th. According to David Stoss at Hosh Blackwell, who's an excellent source for state privacy law debriefs, the bill can be compared to uh, Washington Privacy Act, uh, the Washington Privacy Act model, which, as we know, we still don't have a Washington Privacy Act, but, uh, you know, the bones of it, with some slight variations, including that New Jersey's uh, also covers financial information as a category of personal data, but it does not include consumer health data. Uh, the bill also doesn't require controllers to provide a link on their websites, enabling them to opt out of targeted advertising or the sale of their data. Anyway, we could talk all day about what New Jersey does or doesn't do, but this is a podcast and not really the forum. So for more on this, uh, Google it, you know? Next up, for the first time, the FTC has banned a data broker from sharing or selling users' sensitive location data. In what has to be a punishing blow, the FTC in its order, will also require a company called Xmode, which TechCrunch reports is now known as Outlogic, to delete or destroy all the location data it previously collected, along with any products that produced out of that data, unless it obtains consumer consent or ensures the data has been de-identified. Uh, TechCrunch notes that Senator Ron Wyden's office was the first to reveal that Xmode has sold, had sold location data to U.S. military contractors. Specifically, Xmode was selling precise geolocation data about consumers that had visited, quote, certain medical facilities, pharmacies, or specialty infusion centers within a geographic area across Columbus, Ohio, end quote. Xmode was collecting that data from third-party apps that incorporated Software Development Kit, or SDK, into their apps from its own mobile apps, as well as by purchasing location data from other brokers. I think this case is pretty cool, and I was tweeting about this earlier this week. It's really the FTC doing what it said it was going to do. After the Dobbs decision, President Biden told the FTC to protect individuals' health privacy, particularly when it involves trips to sensitive locations. The FTC stated in no uncertain terms after Dobbs that it would be coming after data brokers and organizations violating consumer privacy related to health data and location. And the FTC, as we know, is aiming to protect consumers from commercial surveillance as evidence in its ongoing proposed rulemaking on that very topic. And well, that's what it did there, you know? I dig the transparency. The FTC said it was going to do something, and then it did it. And uh, I don't know, I think there's a little bit of calm that comes from knowing the strategy up front. Uh, I'm sure Xmode has different thoughts. If you want more on this topic, check out Odia Kagan's LinkedIn post on this, where she notes that the case highlights that vague disclosures giving a company free license to use or sell data won't be tolerated, as the commission indicates in its order, and that you are your client's keeper. You got to enforce that your third parties are getting informed consent or stop the usage, people. Finally, some news regarding the Washington My Health My Data Act. It has been revealed that companies do need to post separate health privacy policy links on their homepage. A general privacy policy is insufficient under the law. So here's what the Washington Attorney General specifically states on its updated FAQ page. 
The AG says, quote, the consumer health privacy policy must be a separate and distinct link on the regulated entity's homepage and may not contain additional information not required under the My Health, My Data Act. So you can't just use your regular old privacy policy. You got to also have a health privacy policy link on your page. All right. Okay. So there you have it with the news on to today's show. Today's guest is a friend of mine. We go way back. Ruby Zeffo is Uber's chief privacy officer, a role she's held for the last five years or so. I met Ruby before that um, through my work at the IPP. I used to attend her panels at the Global Privacy Summit or PSR or whatever. And I would also call her up for quotes on articles I was writing. The thing about Ruby is that she's fierce. She doesn't take any crap. She's devoted to the diversity and longevity of the privacy field through her mentoring. And uh, just to give you a flavor for who she is, she loves shoes, her cats, and a good bourbon with some tater tots on the side. I know all of this through firsthand experience. Anyway, please enjoy her insights. As always, thanks for listening. It means the world. Please share this on your networks or just tell people, hey, you should check out this podcast. It's amazing. It's great. It's satisfactory. It's fair. Whatever. Love you. Talk to you. So tell me a little bit about um, how you're doing as we go into the new year. How was your, how were your holidays? Were they relaxing? Did you exhale? Um, they're not relaxing when you're a mom and a daughter and you're trying to <laughs> please everybody and, you know, help with somebody else's party and throw your own and wrap all the presents and do all the cooking. But you do it because you really want to make everybody else happy um, and, you know, spend time with family. So in that sense, I had a really good time because I just really wanted to see my family and spend some time yeah. with them. After that, it gets relaxing. <laughs> yeah, that's how it was for me. I went home to Maine, drove home with the street dog, um, the 14 hours and did all the holiday things. And it's nice to like reconnect with friends and family and stuff. But then I gave myself some time after I got back um, to really take my like actual staycation before the new year and just like slug around if I wanted to or like do those projects I've been meaning to do. Bake some pumpkin bread, some banana bread, which is my le- my most recent uh, hobby, which is nice. Um. Okay, so I think it would just be cool. I'm lucky because I know you and I got to meet you years and years ago um, through interviewing you um, for my job at the IPP. And then when you took your job at, o- at Uber, you were really cool to me and you agreed to let me do the first interview with Uber's new CPO, um, which my bosses were very excited about, as was everyone else who read the story. Um, but for those folks who don't know you yet, and for some reason haven't read that profile that I wrote on you, um, <laughs> could you tell us a little bit about um, your your background and like how you got into privacy? Well, it was a jolt, not a gentle glide. <laughs> I've been doing a bunch of different practice areas. I mean, to date, it's probably been somewhere around 10. Um, and, you know, when you've been practicing a long time, you start getting a little antsy. And I always want to learn something new and try something new. And I was working at Intel at that time. And unbeknownst to a lot of people who aren't paying attention, Intel has delved into consumer products numerous times over many years. And this was one of those times where they were going into all kinds of consumer products. So in addition to wearables, which we had bought a wearables, wearables beyond with a really strong heart rate sensor, they were trying to get ahead of what we take for granted now, which is streaming media. And they were building a set-top box that would see who's in the room, hear who's in the room, and serve up your specialized content. So that was really novel at the time, but people were very concerned about the recording and stuff. So we did things like we put a, you know, for grandma, you know, we put a little lens cover. That's, you know, if if that's, you want something you can see that, you know, and so we, we made this device, you know, not creepy and such, but we couldn't get the media relationships. This is why it didn't um, take off at the time. We couldn't get anybody to, to split off from the cable companies and such, but it was a fantastic thought, right? And so we needed to really grow up the privacy team quickly, which had been sitting in public policy. Plus, we wanted to take care of any privilege issues. So it was like, hey, 
Um, you've been wanting something new. Could you just go build a new global privacy team? And while mm-hmm. you're at it, could you go over to IT, which was a six to 7,000 person organization, and go talk to the CIO and be their legal support too and find out what they're doing over there about cybersecurity. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, you know, they had a lawyer, but it wasn't a senior lawyer. So I'm like, okay, I have two new jobs overnight. And I, of course, you never get rid of your completely old job. It, there's like a wave of overlap until you find the lucky person who gets the job that you just had. So that was my entry. And I spent about a year doing and learning all at the same time. It was very hard because you know, I'm having to take care of business that I'm also trying to learn a lot. And I'm going to all kinds of local seminars and, you know, things like that to learn. And about a year later, I felt like my feet were firmly on the ground. I would go and already have foreseen what I would be seeing on the stage. And, you know, and then I started doing my own speaking gigs, which is the best way ever. When you can start teaching other people, you know, you know what you're talking about. Yeah, for sure. And so what brought you to uh, where you are now at Uber? Well, that was pre-IPO. There was a very public data breach, a very public FTC order on the way. Um, People didn't know it was coming yet, but it was in all 50 states attorneys general (laughs) Um, and other wonderful global uh, regulatory inquiries um, in the past executive regime, which had been turning around different CEO, different general counsel. I was one of the general counsel's first new hires, actually. And so I got the call and I had been at Intel for quite some time. And I wasn't really sure about going to Uber (laughs) because we didn't know that much about what was behind the curtain other than what we were, you know, the fantastical headlines we were reading in the paper. So I I, but they were hiring really cool, responsible adults who had their own reputations at stake. Um, so my boss is Tony West, a well-known attorney who worked the government and in private practice and was the GC of PepsiCo. So then he hired Tammy Alderon, who um, helped Eric Holder write the culture report for Uber after their um, very public shenanigans. So you don't hire those people if you don't mean to clean up what you had going on. And the CEO, he's just fantastic. And he actually happens to be the cousin of the AI CTO I was supporting over at Intel. And those guys don't need money. They do things because they want to help a better world. And so I thought that guy really means to turn this place around. And I was right, right? You don't know though till you get the job. Um, but I did as much due diligence as I could. And in the end, I talked to one of my mentors who said, look, you got nothing to lose. You've never been pre-IPO. It's a gap. You could fill the gap. And if it doesn't work out, it's still a great experience. You can move on. Right. But I'm still here. I'm still here over five years later. (laughs) I love that. And you know, I, I, what's interesting to me, I mean, it's all interesting to me, but one thing that stood out for me that you said, and actually we haven't, I don't think talked about before is like for me, when I, a Teratru, um, where I am now, you know, approached me about coming on board and I don't know how to evaluate tech startups. Like people were like, well, what is Teratru? Like, what are you going to go there for? Like, what do you mean? I've never heard of them. And um, obviously part of my mandate was to help change that and kind of try and, you know, put some content out that would at least get our name out there a little bit. But um, I went with my gut of when I met the, well, my gut and resumes, but when I met these people, the leaders, you know, Chris Handman, who you've met, um, mm-hmm. and I, maybe this is dumb, but so far in my life, it's worked where I was just like, I can tell that he's first and foremost, like a, well, a very smart person, a very accomplished person, great resume, but also someone who doesn't need, like, they're not here for the cash grab. Like they've had success. You know, he brought, he brought snap through its IPO and, um, And I was just like, I felt motivated to work for someone who I thought was a good person first and a great mentor type. And then also maybe this tech company thing could be cool, Um, which I know isn't totally what you're saying, but I I hear your respect and admiration for like good people trying to do good, cool stuff and using their smarts for good. Um, So I definitely relate to that. My question for you on top of what you answered is, are you the type of person, and I feel like you are just from knowing you, like you're 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 a go-getter, you're you're type A, you're like, you're really after it, you have your stuff together. 
Um, did you love the idea? Cause like when I think about Uber saying to me, which they never would, but like, Hey, w- the FCC is watching us. We've been all over the media. We're in trouble. We got to turn this ship around. Is that daunting to you to have that type of scrutiny as you come in? Or did you love the idea of like strapping your gloves on and being like, let's go. I can clean this up. Oh, you know the answer. I said I get bored <laughs> easily, right? I mean, I have got to have my mind occupied or it goes to, you know, what is it? The idle hands make for the devil's work. So idle minds make for the devil's work. So I knew it would be a challenge, but, you know, Tony was honest about, it. I don't really even, you know, I'm not the expert. Like, I don't really know what you need to build or how. And I said, okay, here's the deal. I'm not a fiefdom builder or anything else. You have to promise me the staff I look for. And I promise you, it will be what I need. And he did. And he was true to his word. And so I didn't know what was behind the curtain. I hadn't been able to talk to any of the small team that was already here. Um, But I was wonderfully surprised at the quality of the small team that was here. One person I'd actually worked at Intel and didn't even know she was here. And I was so glad to be reunited with her. And I just have a wonderful, most of them are still here. Um, And then we've grown the team, of course, all over the world. And so that was very important that he trusted my judgment enough to let me do what I needed to. And very exciting. I love building things from the ground up. It's very fun and exciting to do that. And you, you know, you, you get to really do things the right way. It's very different than having to fix an ancient, you know, old system with a lot of people and turning that around. If you have to have a turnaround situation, you want to do it the way you can, the way you know best, as quickly as possible, which is what they needed. This had to be done quickly because we also had a looming IPO in addition to compliance with these orders that we were finishing up negotiating when I started. So there was a lot of pressure to turn this, you know, all of these bad, um, you know, press stories into something much more positive. And, and so having that trust as I came in the door was essential to me having the confidence that I could do it. And it, that's what made it exciting and worth my time and effort. Yeah, absolutely. And was there anything um, about coming to Uber? Like, obviously, you had, you were at Intel, you were also at Sun Microsystems. Yeah, and a law firm before that. In a law firm. Um, was there anything, I know you had like a lot of experience coming in, but was there anything about joining Uber that you had to figure out in terms of Uber's unique needs that was challenging mm-hmm. for you? Or could you really apply your old knowledge and just build? The, every place is different. The, the biggest challenge is always going to be the culture. So even going, well, even going from the law firm to my first in-house job, there's a culture shift, right? And then going from Sun, which was kind of fly by the seat of its pants for a 20-year-old company, to Intel, which, you know, books are written about its culture. That was an adjustment. And then going from Intel to Uber. Um, so, you know, you're trying to find where the risk line is going to be drawn. How how risk-averse are they? You know, what are their biggest risks? And this business model is very challenging anyway, right? It's digital, but it, then it flows into the physical world. So safety is extremely important to us. It's global, but then it's also regulated at an exceptionally local level. And then the regulations are all different, even outside of privacy. So I think for lawyers, it's a super challenging place anyway. But I did the same thing I did at Intel when I took over, which was I spent like a month interviewing people. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what I don't know, and I don't have the ego to think I do. So I want to hear from every stakeholder, what are you thinking about? What do you think the challenges are? Where do you see gaps? What would you like to see? And even doing that at Intel, where everyone already knew who I was in a different role, um, really builds trust because they realize you're sincere in wanting to have this collaborative environment where you want people to tell you what's really happening and, you know, to be a real partner in the business as opposed to, you know, this, you know, person who's saying no all the time or something, which has never been my brand, but they don't know you, right? So you got to start over. Right. And so do you feel like they see you as that now? Because we talk about that a lot, too, about at TerraTree, because we're on the technology side of that, but embedding privacy with stakeholders like product and engineering early on and developing that trust um, and and trying to tell them, like, I don't want to just be the house of no. I want to help you enable. And so do you feel like you've established that relationship now with your teams where they're like, she is a business partner. She's not just trying to shut me down. And they're coming to you when they need to with things. Yeah, but you have to understand it's really, I mean, my team is the one 
on the ground all over the world at every level of the organization. So they have to be a reflection of that thinking too. And they definitely are. I love my team. I have built a fantastic team and they deserve all the credit for how well things are going here and how they built relationships across the company. I get so much positive feedback on how they approach things, but you're always going to have a cranky pot or two particularly people who don't understand the regional and cultural differences. Let's face it, privacy is built on people's culture and Mm -hmm. it reflects what they care about. And that differs in different jurisdictions based on how they grow up and, you know, the past history. I mean, GDPR uh, grew up, you know, after World War II and terrible, you know, um, investigations and uh, inquiries into people and of course then the horrible consequences when they unearthed people they didn't like so much so mm-hmm. you know when you're at risk of even just being arrested no less killed um you know though that's going to change your viewpoint of what surveillance looks like and what's okay and what's not okay and it's very different around the world and that's kind of what people are thinking about now in terms of privacy rights, not just from the police, but from tech companies. It's all considered mm-hmm. unwanted surveillance if it goes too far beyond the balance of the benefit versus the detriment. So sometimes that's a little bit of a challenge when someone with very local eyes doesn't like that we're trying to have a global approach for scalability and they want to do things different. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't hear from people a lot who talk about the challenges of cultural differences and um, when it comes to privacy. But obviously, that's very, very true. Uh, the expectations are different depending on context. Um, I'd love to hear. I'd, I have. To, I want to be careful about not asking you questions that would be too invasive on in terms of the business. But when you came into Uber, and and then we'll move on. I'm not going to spend all of our time talking about Uber started Uber, <laughs> but. Um, Did you identify areas that, well, I guess you kind of said this in terms of investing and making sure that you had those stakeholder relationships, but uh, were there other areas that you felt like you needed to prioritize in those first couple years? Absolutely. Well, because I mentioned digital into physical safety is, you know, job one here. It's been job one for years. It's always job one. It's a priority every single year. And so um, that can impact people's privacy rights as you're trying to make things more safe and trying to make sure you properly verified people and things like that, and that you can track things down and you know where those cars are, what they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that was one. Another one is just scaling uh, such a large privacy and cybersecurity program across continuously evolving and unharmonized set of laws and ethical expectations, which is what every, you know, company is going to face who's global. And then the latest challenge, of course, is that scary darling AI, right? And harnessing its enormous potential in a responsible way that's not just for compliance. It's really for trust and longevity of solutions. I keep telling people, this isn't compliance. This is what everyone wants to see in their AI solutions. The laws are falling behind and making people do it. But regulators have been very clear. They want voluntary, if you insist on using the word compliance with what you know is coming. So just do the right thing here. And then your solution will live a lot longer than it would if you try to get away with something in the short term. Plus, no one will want to do it and you'll have a bad brand. Absolutely. I'm curious, you know, one thing that I I definitely wanted to talk to you about because I I obviously use Uber. Mm-hmm. And one thing I think Uber, by the way, this isn't a question. One thing I, I think Uber does, well, actually, it is kind of a question. One thing I think Uber does really well is like, I'm going to finish the sentence at some point, is that <laughs> I, is that like, well, first of all, I really noticed the iterations like there's, uh, you know, in time as things have evolved and we've seen there's always going to be some bad, bad apples where like a driver kidnapped someone or or whatever, like in the worst case scenarios, like there's been some stories where you're like, ah, and then you see this change rollout where it's like, oh, um, we have to, you know, f- for verification purposes, we're going to, I have a pin code that I have to share with you to make sure that you're my right driver and I'm the right passenger. And I have real time like things where I can like, I need help. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling danger. I'm feeling in danger or whatever. Um, are you, uh, those seem like really smart solutions that are easy for me as the user to understand what's happening and what my Mm -hmm. options are. 
Are mm-hmm. you in the room? Are, is privacy a big part of like those types? Because I know that's a safety thing, mm-hmm. but privacy and safety are kind of working together. Are you part of those conversations about like how do we protect privacy, but also like in those types of notifications that I'm talking about? Oh, absolutely. Right. How yeah. those roll out, where they roll out, um, what the controls are. The voluntary ones, of course, are wonderful. If you want it, friend to track your ride, you can, you know. So so those things, I, I use the pin code at night uh, or in the early morning just to make sure. Um, but, you know, those are your choices. And so we always have those conversations. In fact, we're in a new building now, and the uh, one of the lawyers we work the most with on safety initiatives now sits right across the desk from me. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, which is handy. But um, so, yeah, we work with that team constantly, all the time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like to me from the outside that, you know, I'm not in your daily meetings and, you know, maybe you're getting late night phone calls and that sort of thing. But to me, it seems like things move in terms of privacy features and releases pretty at a steady clip. And like once I once you kind of hear about something that may or may not be a problem, oh, here's a solution to it. Do you, it seems like you all have a pretty good system in terms of you working, you know, you mentioned you established those relationships, but mm-hmm. you working in tandem with, you know, with the teams necessary. Do you feel like you've really at Uber, you kind of have a good command of that, like flow in terms of we want to release this feature. We need to adequately review privacy and safety and like keep things moving. Yeah, we do. Um, I think sometimes the challenges come in expanding it to a region where, um, it's not as easy because, of course, the first region is going to be where it's normal, natural. People want it. Really, not not too much of a de- debate. And then yeah. you'll have a, a you know some safety thing increasing in a different region, you know. And so mm-hmm. now you've got to do a little bit more legal work, make sure um, you know that all the controls are properly done. Maybe you even add a little bit extra. It just depends on what it is, um, mm-hmm. you know. And mm-hmm. if if it's if it's not obvious, sometimes you may do a pre-consult with a data protection authority, um, which we did for our facial verification program, where the driver compares a selfie to the profile photos we have um, on our system. So mm. we want to make sure that was done correctly and in keeping with what they anticipated. So you have options on um, anything you might be concerned might be misconstrued. And that's mm. not a small problem. You know, sometimes people make the wrong conclusions about what you're doing or how you're doing it. And so you want to be transparent and make sure they understand it. And actually, if you were a driver and went to see how that verification system works, you'd find very simple language explaining it. Yeah, that's and I that's what impresses me about Uber is because I think we all really struggle. I mean, it's not the same thing, obviously, as a complete legal legal disclosure. But I think sometimes even just explaining to users how they can use the technology to better themselves in plain English and in real time can be like very difficult. And I find that Uber does that really well where I'm like, yep, I, it's concise. I get what you're saying. You know, like I can opt in or opt out and this all sounds pretty good to me. So like hats off to, to accomplishing that. Um, I think it's something a lot of us are still struggling with. Um, what are kind of like, can you give me a feel for modern, you know, I've been asking you a lot about your start and how you got things going, but um, from where you sit now, you've been there for eight years now, something like no, that? No, just over five. It's It may oh, seem like five. eight to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, okay. So just over five, but for, so for a few years now, um, obviously the problems change as time evolves um, and the company and your uh, team's um, mature, what are the problems that you face, or maybe not problems, but things that um, really take up a lot of your time that you're concerned about and that you're working toward addressing uh, these days? Um, honestly, I've been doing a lot more work on AI governance, which is not um, just me, as you well know, um, because you're quite the gadfly. Um, <laughs> you know, everybody, you're the Kevin, Kevin Bacon of <laughs> privacy. Um, so, all of us are getting these responsibilities um, for, for a variety of reasons. I mean, first of all, obviously, everybody's concerned about the personal data being used to train these systems and such and where that's coming from and what's in there. Um, so that that's sort of one threshold um, concern for people is where where's this data coming from and is mine in there and what's it being used for. Um, but but there are others, too, in terms of just, um, you know, obviously the bias and unfairness stuff that's been involved for quite some time, any kind of profiling involved. Um, and so and then, of course, GDPR with the 
automated decision-making that's been in there from the start just didn't really get traction until more recently. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've already been dealing with machine learning, basically, with a legal or similar effect um, since GGPR has been launched. And it's mm-hmm. an easy way to start getting companies to do better if it's being used for that purpose. Mm-hmm. And then that then is being embedded as a sneak attack almost in all the state privacy laws cropping up that quasi-copy GDPR, but not exactly. They take mm-hmm. good elements from GDPR, like all of the um, data subject rights, you know, of access and correction and all of that. And then they've been often putting in some flavor of automated decision-making regulation, which is, you know, typically having to do with profiling type of things, mm-hmm. but not identical, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. although some of them are kind of similar. So we've had that on our plates for some time. And so my role in that has been increasing as well as these things continue to roll out and be of concern to people because you can't run a business like Uber's without algorithms. People aren't humanly capable of doing all the matching of, you know, drivers and delivery people or riders or whatever. It has to be done that way. So we want to make sure that things are um, being properly evaluated. Yeah. And are you someone who, because I know you tend to work on, you know, even just what you mentioned uh, by from your work at Intel, working on like issues of the future, really um, staying ahead of, ahead of that tech curve. I know for AI, there's been some clamoring about like, we need the rules of the road and, you know, we don't even have a privacy law. We need an AI law and we're watching the EU <laughs> develop its AI law. Are you mm-hmm. someone are you someone who's like we really need some answers and leader I mean beyond what the GDPR says and some state mm-hmm. laws are you someone who's like we really need like the rules of the road we need the guardrails or the other argument I've heard is listen like just go back to first principles like we have yeah. the rules of the road what's mm-hmm. your take on that I am very much a ladder camp um we're never going to get ahead of everything AI is going to be able to do look how fast uh ChatGBT and its brethren uh, came down the pike, right? I mean, really fast. You were never going to be able to legislate that in time. So the principles are super important. And it's so amazing how closely this mimicked the sort of way that privacy kind of came upon us, even though it's ancient, you know, depending on how far back you want to go. And so we didn't have prescriptive rules about privacy, and we still don't. I view GDPR as a framework that allows for innovation when properly, um, you know, applied. So I view AI the same way. You start with a principled basis that is literally driving everything. And the principles in terms of AI have so much commonality, much like the FIPS did for privacy, right? If you go and do a search, you will find 90% plus commonality in what the OECD says compared to NIST, compared to private companies, compared to, there is so much overlap in what people want that it's not very hard to see where those laws are going to fall. And God forbid you go a little extra than some prescriptive law, right? And just make a good experience for people. So I'm definitely of the camp. And I said this early in the privacy days, if you follow these principles, it won't really matter too much where the law drops because it'll be somewhere around here and you'll be forgiven for your good intention before it came down that you tried. And so if you slipped over the line a little, it'll probably be a gray line anyway. And you've done your best and that makes people Mm -hmm. happy. Mm. And is that how you tend to build your program in terms of all of these new state laws and the ones that will come? Like, are you just building on principles and saying like, hey, like, you know, this is a good user experience. It complies with privacy's first principles. It's going to cover us along the line. Or are you having to kind of piecemeal try and comply? It's kind of both. You have to have a baseline. When I first started talking about how you scale a global program, I was using the, my 007 analogy, <laughs> mostly because I that? like 007. Well, if you look at every 007, except the last one, they finally snuck a woman in there, thank goodness. Um, they're all debonair men in tuxedos who are super handsome. And if you blurred their faces, you probably wouldn't really be able to tell them apart. Um, So there's a lot of commonality in the basis of it. And then each one adds a little extra flair and a little extra flavor. 
That's kind of where you need to run your privacy program. There has to be a foundation. And then you have a limited amount of scalability to do a couple different flavors off of that. And that's pretty much it. You cannot personalize for every single jurisdiction when you're global. So our baseline, our 007 baseline is basically GDPR because it really covers a lot of ground. It's being copied in some way or another in almost every law that's come along since. And it's a good baseline. But it still leaves you a little leeway, you know. So if you're a First Amendment fan and you don't love the right to be forgotten in every instance, there's leeway to do that a little bit differently, you know. And so that's the way we look at it. And so we have a big tracker we use. And then each state law that comes along, we see if there's, you know, a stepchild in there that doesn't quite (laughs) fit the mold. We make an accommodation for the stepchild. Um, and if it's not a bad one, it may just go global. Who knows, right? If it's a pain in the rear end, then maybe it's not. Um, so, but that's the way we do it. What about, um, how does that apply to Washington's My Health, My Data Act? That seems to have thrown kind of a wrench and it seems to have kind of thrown some people for a curve in terms of complying with state privacy laws because it's a little bit, it covers things that people yeah. might not necessarily have anticipated. Did that throw a wrench in any plans or you had your foundation and you could just kind of Yeah, tweak? it's not, or not you know, squarely in health, we do have Uber Health, which is really a transportation service um, for, you know, Uber for business, um, you know, health type rides. And so there are some special precautions around there and the data involved, but it's not like we're not, you know, a healthcare provider. We're not even um, a health, you know, device or app provider. So it's right, right, right. It's complicated for anyone circling around it, for sure, because you want to make sure that any additional precautions are taken care of, but it's not core to our business. So we weren't like freaking out about it or anything. Yeah. And in retrospect, that was a dumb question. It just Washington as an outlier came to my mind. (laughs) No, it's not at all a dumb question because there is overlap. right? And my point is, if you're doing anything, because this goes beyond what we traditionally think about health, you do have to go look if you're circling yeah. health at all and see if you're in the net and if there's any difference. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a good okay. question. I feel I feel better now. Ruby said it's not dumb. Okay. Um, I wonder um, when you're at a company like Uber where you are really, um, I mean, constantly creating and iterating and obviously competing, um, do you feel like brand, you know, we have this kind of... Um, narrative that privacy is the new differentiator and big brands are competing on that. Do you feel like that's true? Is is Do you feel like brands are actually striving to compete in that way or not yet? That is a really good question. It was a struggle initially because if you've done all the work, you really want it to be a differentiator. And then there's all of the questions about, do people really care about it when they sell their privacy for a $2 Waffle House coupon? Um, But my, my point was one, they may not know that's what they're doing. So we had a lot, remember the early days, no one knew what was happening with their data. And then people started getting a little wiser and they may have been making very conscious choices that may have seen contradictory. So, um, you know, I may work with two different competitors in my personal life and I trust one more than the other. So I'm willing to to give my data to this one and not that one. And someone's, oh, you're just inconsistent. No, that was actually thoughtful. So it's hard to tell sometimes what the trends are because it is up to a lot of people's decisions on what they want to actually invest time in, you know, figuring out what they don't and just, you know, I'm not ever going to be able to fix this any, like if it's my medical institution, God only knows I need my medical treatment. So, um, So I think it's a really hard one to decipher, Mm -hmm. but I will say, I think it's turned into something that we're going to find AI turning into, which is an entitlement. Whether or not I know what's happening with my data and whether or not I've been able to make conscious choices, I expect you not to do something bad and creepy. And if you do, there's going to be a class action lawsuit about it um, or an FTC complaint for, you know, unfairness and shame on you. And so I think that's where it's going, where I can't control this. So you had better, you people had better put on your big boy pants and do better 
or you're going to be hearing about it from a number of different regulators and agencies now because we've had enough experience where we expect you to do the right thing. And that goes back to principles. And you think that, so So, are you talking about that that's really consumer driven, that the consumer has a sort of entitlement to make sure that like you're yes. going to treat my data right? Yeah. And yeah. I think companies should have been thinking that way all along, um, right? And so now things like GDPR are, for, are a forcing function, but we've also just got way more people enforcing agencies and things enforcing. We've got more litigation. We've got much larger fines. But I think the key is not the fines. I've said this all along. If the biggest companies, the fine isn't going to do it. It's the injunctive relief. And that's where the FTC has had much more prescriptive orders. We're using disgorgement of data and algorithms, which we knew yes. was coming. And if yeah. you don't see that coming on the AI side, that's going to be what really hurts. Yeah, I think algorithmic disgorgement is so interesting and scary if I was a company. I have a question for you on that. Do you think that, um, cause you know, uh, back when Joe Sullivan, who was, uh, he was the CISO, right? At Uber or CEO. Yeah. He was a chief security officer. Yeah. So before we saw my him, time. Right, right, right. But we saw him go through a certain level of personal liability over Uber's breach. Right. And that was sort of groundbreaking and that they're like, bringing Joe, taking Joe to task for some mis mm -hmm. missteps. Um, and I thought, ooh, that's the peak of the scare. Like, that's like, ooh, they're going to, if they're going to start holding personal, you know, mm -hmm. especially the chief privacy officer, the chief security officer, what mm -hmm. do you think scarier or the right tactic to get companies really in line? Is it personal liability or algorithmic disgorgement, if you had to pick? The personal liability thing, um, putting Joe aside from it, like solar winds, remember there were claims there was fraud involved, that mm. they were lying, not just, you know, about a breach or whatever, but about what their security practices were. That has been a thing for years. People probably didn't pay too much attention in terms of the cases where somebody was deemed to have said something where they were insuring security, for example, which of course is never can't guarantee security, right? So, right. but it started like with solar winds, it really hit the fan because of the impact of someone who provides that kind of service to a bunch of other companies that can then bring down so much of our economy. So, um, but I don't think that's like going to be massively common. It has to be perceived, whether it's true or false on the facts, perceived as pretty bad behavior. Mm -hmm. I think the bigger issue is what hits the shareholders in the company more, which is going to be, I can't use the data, I can't use the algorithms. Um, that is going to be much more painful than a single person being held liable. Fair. I think that's true, too. I noticed the other day when I was taking an Uber that there's a new record button. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us about what that is? And well... Are you allowed to talk about, um, can you tell us what that is? And, <laughs> yes. and are you allowed to talk about it's not a secret. some of the, well, wait, wait, no, 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 sorry. My, my, the part that I'm wondering if you could talk about is not that the, there's a very public feature available, but there must've been some really interesting conversations about the privacy implications of that. I would think, um, since you're, let's start there. Are you, are, can you yeah. tell us a little bit about, about it? Well, sure. I mean, you're talking about our in-app re audio recording feature. Yes. Um, so any kind of recording is going to create a conversation on where it's going, what it's for, and the problem statement. So you're always going to start with what's the safety issue, what's the problem statement, and how does your proposed solution fix it? And then, of mm. course, it's going to go through a thorough PII, PIA, Privacy Impact Assessment Analysis, and any suggestions we may have to lessen the privacy impact and still get to the solution that they've told us they wanted. And in this case, it's very responsibly done. For example, it's not automatic. You know, just, it just doesn't turn on with the app. You have to go, mm -hmm. one of the, either the driver or the rider has to go in and turn that feature on, right, in the account mm -hmm. safety settings. And mm -hmm. then there's an in-app notice that's displayed to the other party, the rider or the driver, that says that it's on or vice versa, mm -hmm. you know, whoever, whichever person turned it on. So there, there's awareness in the app that it's happening. And then mm. those recordings are encrypted. So it's on the user's device itself and it's not accessible to the other users or to that user or to Uber unless someone wants to file a safety incident report and they choose to submit that to our, um, to us, in which case we then have a trained safety ops agent who then listens to it for purposes of, of investigating that incident and goes into our whole incident, incident investigation system. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then any other recording that was not part of a safety report is just sitting there encrypted on the user's device, and then it's automatically deleted in days. So okay. that's why I feel very comfortable with the way that was rolled out. And to be completely frank, I don't mind it at all when it's in my vehicle, because I also know not to be talking about confidential things when there's a third party in the car, even if, you know, they're completely nice, responsible people. <laughs> Don't do that, people. <laughs> yeah, dude, no I mean, whose car, a bus, train, just don't do it. <laughs> oh, I know. But you, I'm sure, you know, living in San Francisco, uh, you know, in D.C., it's wild the things people will talk about in public. Like, I sometimes I overhear conversations that I'm just like, you know, legal or not. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe that I am overhearing this right now. Um, so you think people would be very smart about that, but I gotta say there's, uh, there's some ignorance on, uh, what you should be saying with other parties present. Um, I only have a couple minutes left with you before I have to let you go, but I want to ask you, um, what do you think about this? This is kind of a broad question, but what do you think about the regulatory space right now? Because I'm really interested, for example, um, you know, we see the FTC going after, for example, data brokers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just saw mm-hmm. a case yesterday uh, where a data broker got in trouble for selling sensitive location data. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's been interesting to watch the FTC move here on mm-hmm. things like sensitive locations and health data and that sort of thing after, you know, mm-hmm. Biden had said to the FTC, hey, like after the Dobbs decision, I I want you to police this area. Um, are you watching? I mean, obviously Uber is doing what Uber is doing because it has a strong privacy program and you at the helm, but you know, you must be still paying attention to regulatory news and that sort of stuff. Do you, are you interested? (laughs) Are you, are you, you, what do you, uh, what do you think about the FTC's like recent activity, uh, in general? They have definitely put uh, multiple stakes in the ground about what they're going to do and they have followed up and done it. So I give them credit for being transparent. Uh, for following through and also for giving a bunch of guidelines, like they are tipping us off left and right about their intentions. So pay attention, people, right? This is not a secret. They're not like gotcha-ing people. They're saying, this is our intention. Here's some guidelines. And now we're coming after you. So I'm not surprised by what they've been doing. Um, So we're always watching. I don't care if it's Mm. the FTC or anybody else. If anybody's Mm. upticking on enforcement anywhere in my business, I'm going to be tracking and paying attention to that. And also Mm. the devil is often in the details. It may look innocuous compared to your business because maybe you're like, well, it's not really my core business. And then you read something, you're like, oh, man, there's a back door in there for something else to happen or, um, or this is weird or whatever, right? So you really do have to take a look. I'm honestly more concerned about smaller companies um, who have a really hard time investing in these areas and they don't know where to put their money. But size doesn't matter here. I just um, finished Cashmere Hill's book on Your Face Belongs to Us about Clearview AI, which is fascinating because it goes well beyond into the history, how we got here, eugenics, a bunch of stuff, how we judge people by their appearance. I found it really, really, I highly recommend the book. But what Mm. it does is it shows you that small companies can do really bad things um, if they're not properly regulated. And so instead of saying, oh, you small business, you're completely exempted from these laws, it should be following the data. Mm. And if it's, you know, average non-sensitive data, maybe size is okay. But if they're collecting biometric data, for example, and selling it to law enforcement, maybe they should be having very stringent (laughs) rules. So when I'm looking at this regulation and I'm looking at each new law that crops up and they're struggling to find how not to overwhelm small companies, which I completely understand, I don't believe it can be done without looking at the data they're processing as part of that analysis. So Mm -hmm. I think that that's a place that needs further scrutiny and they should be the ones who are really starting to pay attention. Mm. What do you think about this idea um, that... Um, you know, the FTC's talked a lot, I think it's the FTC, if I'm remembering correctly, about algorithmic transparency. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems complicated to me because sometimes algorithms yeah. can be proprietary and like, how do you really demonstrate what you're doing? Does that, is that tricky for a company? It's tricky for everybody. And it's not just the FTC. Everybody, it's one of those principles that everybody wants explainability and transparency. So those are two different things. Telling you what you're, you know, where, automated decision-making is happening is very different than explaining it in a way anyone can understand it. 
especially mm-hmm. as you get into deep learning and things like that. I mean, nobody really knows why it's doing what it's doing. So I think it is going to be very challenging. And I think, honestly, if you're going to be practical about it, the best you can do is here's why we developed it. Here's the problem we're solving. And here's what mm-hmm. it's supposed to be doing. And then when you measure it, is it doing that? Mm-hmm. How exactly it's doing it? You don't explain that with your brain. If you go, you know, to get a loan, you don't say, well, and you have criteria. Well, how exactly did your brain apply that criterion? Why did it make the decision it made, right? Mm-hmm. That's just too much. And I think it's mm-hmm. too much for AI too. But that doesn't mean you can't explain it enough for people to understand the process, what was supposed to happen, and whether they were somehow unfairly impacted by it. And I think the biggest areas are the ones we're already focusing on, which regulators are focusing on. And those are the things that really can impact a person's life. And that's the right place to start. Mm-hmm. Okay. Lastly, before I have to lose you, although I could talk to you for me- for much, much longer, um, what keeps you working in this space? Because for someone like you, um, you know, as as everyone can tell by now, if they didn't know you already, like super focused, successful, intelligent, like loves to like get shit done, like you've accomplished a lot, and um, you're so capable. What keeps you? Are you? Do you still feel challenged and excited, or what keeps you working in this space? Well, what's happened is privacy, security, AI, all these fields I've been doing have conglomerated into just a big responsible data job, right? Responsible use and protection of the data. And so this one has been the most volatile. There's always something to learn, to lead, to apply. And that keeps me going. Um, That and something you probably also know, and I've gotten much more heavily involved with each passing year, which is my DEI work. I care so much about passing on things that make it easier for everyone else, which I didn't get in my day. It's like, we will learn the hard way. Now you have to. I don't feel that way at all. My job is make it easier and more beneficial and a happier place, a great place to work for others because... This is a space that needs a lot more people. (laughs) When I look at the future, we're going to need a lot more people. And so I work very hard um, to mentor people. I do a bunch of um, stuff at Uber. I'm I'm the new uh, executive sponsor of mentoring at Uber because apparently I'm mentoring more people than other people. So, um, So I keep working in that. Our ERG report I'm very involved in. I mean, our ERG groups, our ESG report I'm very involved in. And so I really want others who are in my position to be paying it forward more, helping um, other people learn. And that is what I really, really enjoy doing is just helping um, make the world a better place for everybody and raise the boats for everyone, not just where I'm working. I love that. And I have to say thank you for being who I consider a mentor figure to me. And I have friends that also consider you a mentor um, certainly in this space and just as professionals broadly. So we salute you. We appreciate your work. It's not for nothing. <laughs> well, we're overdue for old fashions and specialized tater tots. <laughs> we do. We need old fashions and specialized tater tots in San Francisco. I'm hoping to get out West in the next couple of months. So I'm going to hit you up for that date. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Ruby. It's been amazing to talk to you as always. And I uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Well, thank you for hosting me, Angelique. Always a pleasure. Okay. Bye. Bye. 